And so I want you to take your Bibles with me and open them to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to just begin by asking us a question tonight. Do you find it a struggle to obey? Do you find as a Christian it a struggle to obey? We had some opportunity to share tonight already about our own meditation and the illumination of Scripture and how we approach Scripture. And oftentimes we approach the principles of Scripture in an academic fashion as well. Oftentimes we will hear things from the Word of God and we will, in our own heart and our own mind, take them and put them in the uh, imaginary book of principles that we have looked at for years and years and years. And we will take that book of principles and we will stick it on our shelf of principles and there it stays, never really put into practice. And if we try to put it into practice, we struggle in our duty to obey God Himself. And so when we come to obedience, we struggle with that. We have difficulties in our life to obey the things that God has asked us, oftentimes because of that very reality. We know a principle, we've heard the principle, but we don't engage in the principle, and we don't engage oftentimes because we have forgotten just who it is we are and what we have been given by God. The Apostle Paul certainly would like those in Ephesus to understand this. There has been over the centuries a great conflict between the Jew and the Gentile in the ancient days, and Paul is showing them that that unity can be now found in Jesus Christ. That the dividing wall, as we will see in our times of study in the future, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. There is no reality in which God is only dealing with the Jew. He has brought the Gentiles in, and there is a unity that now can come about because of Jesus Christ. They need to understand who they are. And so here in chapter 1, this is where the Apostle Paul begins. And I want to go backwards, if you will, back to what we have heard before and just remind us of these things once again and really emphasize, uh, really a major emphasis that the Apostle Paul is putting in here so that we will understand that we need to remember this in order for our own obedience. We find ourselves here in chapter 1, and I want to read for us a rather lengthy section beginning in verse 3 and go all the way down to verse 23. So really the entire chapter of chapter 1, basically. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, 
That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. And so for this reason, I too, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is an incredible, incredible chapter in the Scripture. Because it begins at the very place that we must begin when it comes to obedience in the Christian walk. It begins with understanding just who we are by means of the grace of God. And so what Paul is saying in verses 3 through 14 are followed, as we saw, by this prayer for the Ephesian believers and and really vicariously and, and pushed out throughout the centuries for every believer for their growth in the in their Christian lives that is based upon an understanding of that which he says right here in verse three three through fourteen. In other words, I pray that you, that you understand these things. What things? The things that I just told you you have in Jesus Christ. And so we'll, we'll just focus our attention more so on the final verses of this chapter as we did last time we were here. But I, I, I want us to have that entire section in our minds because if we, if we don't have that entire section in our minds, we're going to lose our, our focus on exactly what Paul is saying motivates and drives and engages us in obedience to Christ. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time reading the New Testament to see that much of what is written, particularly by Paul himself, is focused on the things that are to come. That which God has granted to us in Christ and which will come to us by means of Christ. 
And certainly when we read the New Testament, we hear of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those glorious realities that we understand that encompass all that God has accomplished for our salvation. The work of Christ that provides the way for us to be saved from our sin. But, but none of that makes any sense without the reality of the return of Jesus Christ. His death and His burial mean nothing unless Christ rose from the dead and is going to return. We need to think of salvation with the the greatness and the wonder of that in our minds because salvation makes no sense unless Christ is going to return one day by His divine power. You and I are just simply wandering around the world, as Paul said to the Corinthian church, without hope and without God, we are the, most, we're the, the people to be most pitied if Jesus Christ isn't coming back because He rose from the dead. If He isn't going to subdue His enemies and subject all things to God, then we are just wasting our time. And this is why we as Christians love the words that come in the final chapter of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, because that ushers in all that we have been given in its actuality in eternity. We as Christians, Paul is saying to the Ephesians, listen, you as Christian believers, you who are the living church of God, we are His body, as he says in verse 23. We look forward to the day when Christ will secure, when He will for all time and in time secure His final victory. And it is to that reality that the Apostle Paul then takes us in his heart and mind in order to drive us to obedience. Drive us to obedience. He's going to tell us in chapter 4, listen, you need, to, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Well, we struggle with that. We struggle with that. Why? Because we have forgotten what is here in chapter 1. Paul has already prayed for two other realities as we've looked at this text. In verse 17, he said, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul says, here's why I'm praying for you. I've told you all this great wonder that God has done for you, just blessing you beyond measure. But here's why I'm praying for you. I'm praying so that God might give you wisdom and understanding. So that you might know Him. You need to have wisdom and a, an understanding of the knowledge of Him. I want you to know God. I don't want you to just know these grand principles about what God has done for you in an intellectual kind of sense, in this academic kind of sense, so you load them in your little book of principles and place it on a shelf. I want you to know God. And by knowing God, that you might know these realities to their fullest in your heart. Why? Because when you grasp what is yours, you will live for Christ in all things. 
Bottom line, Paul says, I'm praying for your growth. And that growth comes from you knowing God. I want you to fully know. I want you to experientially understand Him. I I want you to know the hope of His calling. I want you to know the inheritance of, of Christ that you have and that you are in Christ. It's Christ's inheritance. You notice that? He says, what are the riches in verse 18? The riches of the glory of His inheritance in you. In the saints, in the holy ones, in those who are unified with Jesus Christ, in those who have been called according to God's wisdom and glory before the foundation of the world, who have been set aside, who have been forgiven of their sins. I want you to know that. Undergirding all of that, he says, third, I want you to know the surpassing greatness of His power in you who believe. This is why we have struggles with obedience. We have forgotten the kind of power we have to obey. We have forgotten the kind of power we have to obey. I want us to understand at the outset here that Paul is not so much praying that these believers might be given power by God. Sometimes we pray like that. Lord, Give me the power to do what you've asked. Give me the power to to, uh, walk obediently to you. Sometimes we pray like that. Beloved, we are praying wrong when we're praying like that. Paul is not saying, listen, I'm praying that God would equip you with the right kind of power so that you would be able to know these things and thereby then live these things out. No, he's saying... I want you to understand that you have the power of God already working in you. You have it. I want you to understand that. I want you to experientially know that. You have the power of God in you. I don't believe verse 19, and at least the New American Standard uses the best word there. Right? He says, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe in the New American Standard? That's not the best translation. The word should be in you. In you. Paul knows that God is sovereign in saving these people. He knows that God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Right? Peter says that even in 2 Peter chapter 1. We have everything we need for life and godliness. So Paul is praying that we would understand that, that we would experientially understand that just what it is that God has given to us so that we might live as we ought, so that we might be assured that we are the children of God. And so Paul prays that we might understand what is the surpassing greatness. Understand that. This is surpassing greatness. This isn't just a little bit that's been given, a sprinkling that's been given, oh, maybe you have enough. No, this is the surpassing greatness, notice, of God, His power working in us who believe. When we understand that kind of power, when we understand that kind of power in us, we will not get defeated 
in our striving in holiness. When we grasp the reality of what we have, we, we've talked a lot tonight, a little bit before, about illumination. God, give me understanding. Psalm 119 it talks about give me understanding, give me understanding. God, give me understanding of the power I have in me. Not my power, not my effort, not my way, not my will. Give me an understanding of the reality that I have your power in me. So easily I give up because I don't think I can do it. The words I can't should not be in the Christian vocabulary. The Christian life is one built on knowledge. That's what Paul prays. He prays that these believers in Ephesus would know God better. That they might know the hope of His calling, that they might know the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in them. And now He wants them to understand the incredible power in them. And so we need to understand that being a Christian is built on knowledge, but that knowledge is not simply just intellectual knowledge. It is practical knowledge. It's practical. It's not just some kind of intellectual head principle. It's the outworking of reality as we walk by faith. We don't reduce the Christian life to a series of rules and a series of principles. And if we can just muster up our own energy to to walk by them, then we'll be good Christians. No. Christian life is not simply intellectual. It certainly has its intellectual realities, but it is very practical. So the Christian life is not just reading your Bible and ensuring you know the things of the Bible. That's helpful. We need to know the things of the Scriptures. We need to understand the principles. We need to have those principles. But it is not just that. So that if I just know the doctrines, if I know the truth of Scripture, I can call myself a mature Christian. That's not the reality. We can easily convince ourselves that if we are experts in Christian thought, experts in Christian ideas, experts in Christian principles, then we are mature Christians. We get into bad habits of listening to truth, but instead of practicing it, we just do what I said before. We just put it on the shelf. and say, look, look at my library of godly principles that I have. Look at how much I've, I've written down and I've, I've read the Scriptures. Look at what I've done. And we think that if we know intellectually the truth like that, then we are good to go. And yet we struggle to obey. You wonder why sometimes. Why is it? I know so much of the Scriptures. Why is it I struggle to obey? Well, we struggle to obey because far too often we forget this reality that Paul is impressing upon the hearts or trying to impress upon the hearts of the Ephesian believers. You need to understand, you need to know the surpassing greatness of the power of God that is in you. As important as sound doctrine intellectually is, it doesn't translate to knowing God better and thereby living in the power of God victorious over sin. It doesn't, ma doesn't matter. It's all meaningless. 
We have to understand that without the power of God, none of us would be Christians. Do we understand that? Do we think about that? We're not sitting here tonight as believers in Jesus Christ because somehow we did it. We arrived. Our, our parents trained us in the right way and, and somehow we grasped it and, and we got it and we're here by our own means. Listen, we understand that without the power of God, we would not be saved. Period. Paul gets this very clear beginning in chapter 2, as we'll look at next time. The salvation of our soul is an actual resurrection from the dead. And that means it took the power of God. And in the same way, without that same power, none of us will ever have victory over sin. You realize that? You cannot walk in obedience over sin without the power of God in you. Not one of us could ever have victory over sin. We cannot live godly lives. We cannot ever be with God in the glories of heaven without the power of God, the surpassing greatness of His power. So Paul says, Ephesian believers, you need to understand this. It is this power that is in you that energizes you to live your Christian life. Well, what is that power? What is the surpassing greatness of His power? What power? Well, it is God's resurrection power. Notice what Paul says. I'm praying that you understand what is the surpassing greatness of His power in you. There is no greater display of the power of God than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No greater display. There is no power on earth that could accomplish the resurrection. Nuclear power cannot accomplish the resurrection. The most dynamic power in the world cannot accomplish the resurrection. A hurricane cannot accomplish the resurrection. It will deconstruct a lot of things, but it will not construct anything. The only thing that construct, can construct from deadness to life is God's power. We often don't think of God's power in that way. The same power that God exercised to raise God, raise Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that we have with Christ through our salvation in us. Jesus predicted that he would rise from the dead, and certainly that is what happened. Impossible. You look around, death is inevitable. Everyone dies. We even joke about that. There's only two things in life that are inevitable. Death and taxes, we say. Death is the end of all men. And yet here is Jesus Christ saying, I will return. I will be back. I will rise from the dead. Our heavenly power, only heavenly power could do that. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. God came back. 
God the Father proved that Jesus' claim was true. Satisfied with Christ, declaring Jesus' death a satisfaction for our sin. And therefore, when we are united with Christ by faith, we can live victoriously through that same power. You're alive. You're not dead. You're alive. And so we, we as Christians cannot just think of the resurrection as an event. Certainly it was an event in time and we, we celebrate the resurrection as Easter morning comes. Certainly it was a resurrection and it is a resurrection and it is an event, but it is not simply only event because there is a future resurrection. All of it is by God's power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not an end in and of itself. No, the power of God in the resurrection of Christ is seen in each one of us right now. We sit here as pictures of the display of God's surpassing great power. You ever think of your Christian life like that? that it took resurrection power to save you? Oh, I was just a little bit of a sinner. It didn't really take that much. I mean, it was just a small thing. God just, you know. No, no. No, no. The same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead, it took to bring you into Christ. The resurrection power of God. And that resurrection power is seen in our Christian lives now as we exercise walking by faith over sin. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers of old, spoke of this very passage and talked about three things that we battle against. Paul, of course, discusses these three things in the verses, the beginning verses of chapter 2. And those three things are worldliness and the flesh and the devil. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said the world constantly bombards us with its values. We, we get those things from television and newspapers and films. The competitive world in which we live and earn our livings and from casual conversations. How are we to be victorious over that great enemy? He asks. Well, it's by the power of God. The power that God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The power of the resurrection in you. That's how you have victory over the world. The power of God, the surpassing greatness of His power is able to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12 verse 2. It is what makes us new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So the first great enemy is the world and we fight against the world but we have the power to overcome the world because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world dr lloyd jones goes on to say the second great enemy is our flesh which he says in biblical language means the natu- the nature of sinful man untouched by the holy spirit 
And the flesh is a formidable enemy. It draws us into inactivity when we should be reading the Bible, when we should be praying, when we should be performing good works. The flesh locks us into sinful patterns of behavior when we should be living a Christ-like life. How can we triumph over that strong force? It is only by the power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that is in you. You have the power. You can't say, well, I can't do it. To say I can't would be to say, God, your power isn't enough. And then he says the third enemy is the devil. He goes on to say many people, even Christians, regard the devil almost as an invention or at least one at whom we may laugh at. But when Satan met our first parents in Eden, it was no laughing matter. They had been created perfect without not even a disposition to evil. Yet when Satan appeared, so great was his power, so great was his wiles and subtlety that it was only a short time before he had brought about the fall of Adam and Eve. No wonder Peter writes, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He says, no wonder Paul said to the Ephesians, put the full armor of God on so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. And he then says, because of these things, we need to be enlightened with respect to the power of God working in us. Unquote. This is what we battle against. This is what we struggle with. And so we must experientially know that it is Christ's power in us that overcomes those things. And notice in verses 20 and 21, Paul doesn't want us to doubt that we have that power. Paul doesn't want the Ephesians to doubt that they have what is necessary. And so in verses 20 and 21, he says, which he brought about this surpassing great power he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, this is an encompassing reality when it comes to the power of God. Christ's exaltation far above all rule and all authority means that there is no power, earthly or heaven, that can win. So Paul wants us to know as Christians that in the context of our struggles to live godly lives, we have the power to overcome. We have the power. The Bible teaches us that we struggle not simply against flesh and blood, but Ephesians 6.12 says we struggle against rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Our own flesh is trouble enough, the world is trouble enough, but we have the devil that's working against us in every way as children of God, and all of this is speaking of his schemes. And yet here we have to understand that we have all been made 
in Christ and all of those things are subject to the risen Christ. God, by His surpassing great power, put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ and gave Him as head over all things to the church. So all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, all of it is under Christ. And so we are told that Jesus has been exalted over all of them. And we don't need to doubt it. We don't need to doubt if we can have victory over any struggle. Why? Because Jesus, who we are linked with, Jesus, who we are in Christ, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the very same resurrection power that rose Him from the dead is the same power we have in us. We have the power for victory. How does that victory happen? Last time we were together, I reminded us of this. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he flees from you. So we have in us God's resurrection power. There is nothing more powerful than that. And we access the use of that power through submission to God's Word. We submit ourselves. When our flesh is telling us you can't, we submit ourselves. When our human logic, our fleshly logic is telling us that's a wrong way to go, that's not the way we ought to go, that doesn't seem like it's going to work out, but the Word of God is saying, follow me, we submit ourselves. We do what God says. When the plan doesn't seem like it's clear ahead, when we, we've set spiritual direction in our heart and life according to what we understand the Word of God to be saying, and it doesn't seem clear, in fact, it seems rather tragic in the end. It seems as if we might go off the end of a cliff in financial ruin or whatever it is, or the resources that we have aren't enough. What do we do? We submit ourselves to God. And we can because we have the power of Christ in us. Submit yourselves to God, James says. Don't try your own power. Your power will never work. Submit to God. Just follow what God says. Just do what God says, and God is the one who brings about victory. Whatever the devil's schemes are, whatever he's throwing in the way, whatever by way of the system of the world, as we'll see next time, he's putting out there, it will have no tempting effect upon us. Why? Because we're submitting to the Word of God. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, how does he do it? According to the power that works where? Within us. God uses the power of the resurrection in us to accomplish His work. How? By us submitting. Following after what He says. 
And so Paul says, do you understand what you have? Ephesian believers, do you understand what you have? God in Christ has given you what you need. So Paul is praying, Lord, open their understanding. Get a good understanding of this power, Lord, in their hearts. It is the same power that you exercised when you rose Christ from the dead. That same power. Help them understand that. Help them understand that they have what they need. Paul says, look, you may question whether you can have victory. Your flesh will want to tempt you to say give up, but look at this. He says, it's the same power that raised Jesus and took Him to His place where all things are under Him. That's the same power. The power of God. God submitted all things in subjection to Christ. God gave Him as head over all things to us, the church. We are the church. We are His body. You have what you need. And so, in case you're worried about whether or not God is going to be able to come off with what He has promised, whether or not God is going to enable you for victory, you have to remember He did it in Christ. And He's doing it in you because the power is still the same. The same power. And you're linked with Christ. God isn't going to abandon Christ. He's not going to abandon you. You're part of His body, the church. So God wants us to be understanding that He has equipped us he has equipped us with everything we need, the fullness of Christ in this world. In fact, just, just notice, this, this is a theme that runs through this entire epistle, the power of God in us. Notice what he says in verse 10 of chapter 6. Right? He puts on the, put on the full armor of God, right? He says in verse 11, but before that he says, finally... In other words, here's the last things I want you to have in your mind. He talks about the armor of God in verse 11. But before he gets to verse 11, he says this last sentence in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Finally, you understand these things. You have these as intellectual principles. Put them in a heart principle and understand that God has given you what you need and be strengthened in His power. What's the danger? What's the danger if we don't do that? What happens to us if we refuse willfully to exercise what God has given us? 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and ungrateful and unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice, holding to a form of godliness. 
Sometimes we read that passage in 2 Timothy 3 in those first few verses, we go, well, that's the world around us. That's outside the church. That's outside the body. These are people who don't know God, don't claim God. This is, this is certainly the world in which we live. And yet notice what he says. They're holding to a form of godliness. These are religious people. These are people who say they have a relationship with God. Something in them is relational by way of religion in their life. They're holding to a form of godliness, and yet they have denied what? It's power. It's power. What power is that? The resurrection power of Jesus Christ? They deny the reality of Jesus Christ. Listen, you avoid those kind of people. Avoid them. How great is that? How great is that? We have been changed by the power of God so that we might live according to the power of God as we reflect Christ in the world. We're not going to gain victory any other way. Paul says, listen, Ephesian brothers, you want to you walk as God has called you to walk. You want to be unified with the Jews around as you are. You want to live out this unity that God has broke down the dividing wall between you. You're going to live it out this way. This is the way you need to live it out through the power of God. We, beloved, have the power of Christ in us. We have resurrection power. And I love that because it's like a diamond just shining brightly in our eyes. And it just grows all the more brighter on the backdrop of who we were before God saved us. And that's where Paul turns in chapter 2. Next time we're going to spend our time right there just in the first few verses. Because those verses are so profound. And when we realize the deadness of our deadness, the wowness of the power of God in us is all the more amazing. So I trust this helps us tonight in our submission to God, in our willingness to obey in our striving against sin. We don't have to be crushed by it. It hasn't won. It will not win. We have the power of God in us. We know Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. And He has power over all things. And we have that resurrection power in us. And so we can say, I will, rather than I can't. Let's pray. Father, as we have talked about tonight, illumine our minds and our hearts. Help us to see these things with clarity that we might know them in our heart. Not just the intellectual words, but with the practice of them. Not with arrogance as if we're somebody, but knowing that we're nothing without you. Thank you for resurrection power. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us and calling us out of a world of sin. Lord, may we walk 
in obedience to you, knowing, truly understanding and knowing that we have the power to do what we ought. For the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.